scriptures, and I hope you do. Please feel free to turn to Acts chapter 11. We will be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. We find, once again, oftentimes uh, the chapter breaks are not in the best of locations. I remember when I was in college, I was sharing this with Lois before, uh, during our practice, our music practice this morning, um, my professor said he's convinced that uh, uh, the chapter uh, breaks and the verse breaks were written by old monks on horseback as they were galloping along. And wherever the the pen hit, that's where they marked it. Because sometimes it just doesn't make any sense. And today's uh, a classic example that I, I would argue that most likely verse twelve or chapter twelve should probably start at verse twenty-seven, verses after verse thirty, because twenty-seven through thirty is more connected to chapter twelve than it is to chapter eleven. Be that as it may, we're going to go through nineteen through twenty-six. Just a little heads up, though, we are going to look at nineteen through twenty-six this morning. We are also going to go back to it again next week, Lord willing, and we are also, Lord willing, going to go back to it the week after. And the reason why that is, is because there is a major theme or major teaching of Luke in chapter 11, verses uh, 19 through 20, uh, yeah, 26, that is very important that we see. But there's also two sub-teachings going on, secondary, not secondary in importance, but secondary things Luke is 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 mentioning in the text that absolutely must be understood in order to really understand the text completely. But I'd rather not smash them all together, for not just for sake of time, but I want to isolate each one of them because I think they're that important. And why are they so important? Because in a very real way, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26 is a very, very important transition passage in the entirety of the book of Acts. In fact, it's probably um, one of the most important. Obviously, uh, the break between uh, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is a dramatic and important, dramatically important break. Acts chapter uh, 6-7 is an important shift that takes place there. If you remember, between Acts 1 and Acts 2, you have the disciples, the apostles are in fear. Acts chapter 2, they're what? They're bold, right? Because the, the transition of the, the Spirit coming upon them with, with power. Acts chapter 6, you have this, 6 and 7, you have this dramatic transitional passage that moves from the believers having the Holy Spirit with power, living in peace, and enjoying blessing, right? To these same believers no longer living in peace and just they're still being blessed, obviously, but no longer living in peace, but they move from peace to what? Dramatic persecution. And it's just going to build for 300 years. Um, not just through the New Testament, but also into church history. It's going to build until until Constantine. And then historically, that that's where everything starts going south so dramatically once they receive peace once again. Governmental peace, uh, they uh, rather than just dependent upon the peace with the Lord. Here in chapter 11, we're having, we've seen some other transitions take place. For example, up to this point in time, we have, had, we have seen the transition. We saw it earlier in chapter 11, right? What was the transition in, earlier in chapter 11? It's a real important one. It's going to build here in, in, in this section of chapter 11. What was the dramatic? Gentiles. Gentiles begin to be ushered into the kingdom of God. 
Now, it is interesting. You can go back through the book of Acts and you can see some things, um, such as you have the outreach of the gospel to the Samaritans, but you need to remember the Samaritans were part Jew. So it, it's different than what we see here in chapter 11. You certainly see the, the gospel going to the Ethiopian eunuch, don't you? But again, most likely that Ethiopian eunuch is, has a very, very strong bent up to the point where, where Philip explains the book of Isaiah. He has a very strong bent toward what? Judaism. And, and yet at this point, we're starting to see there's a movement toward the Gentiles, the gospel toward Gentiles. That's going to make a dramatic statement or a dramatic shift towards the Gentiles in today's passage. And it's an important uh, and dramatic shift that we will see. As we go through the text, I will point out, just kind of like to prime the pump, the themes that we'll see for the future two weeks that we're going to look at this text, Lord willing. So you're not left clueless what we're going to, where we're going to go, but we're not going to camp on them today. We're going to save them for the next two weeks. Let's read the text, and hopefully you'll get a flavor of it and where we're headed here this morning. Starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also speak, speaking the, or preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And at Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And we will stop there this morning. That's our text for this morning. So what we see in verses 19 uh, through 26 clearly is a move of the gospel, where again? Toward the Gentiles. And this is a very important transitionary passage. I'm going to go back to verse 19, and we're going to wander a little bit. And we're going to just look at it in sequence to what Luke describes as we work our way through the text. Once again, as so often is the case in my messages, I'm not going to try to give you a nice three points in a poem type of message. We're going to examine the text. If that's all right with everybody. If it's not, no, we're going to do it anyway. You just have to deal with it, I guess. Verse 19 then, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except for the Jews. just want to stop in 19 briefly for a couple things. <clears throat> Number one, I want to introduce to you a theme that we are not going to look at this week. We're going to mention it, but we're, not going, to, we're going to look at it in the future weeks, either next week or the week after. You see it in verse 19. It's a secondary important message being presented by Luke that is, in, I would argue, intended for the reader, the thoughtful reader of the book of Acts, to think about, and he doesn't develop it because I think he expects that we think it through. Notice what it says again. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. You see that? 
That's one of the things we're going to look at in future weeks. Very, very important statement. Now, obviously at its face, we know there was peace before Stephen. Acts chapter 6, he becomes a deacon. And next thing you know, there's persecution that comes along, starting with Stephen and his, and his murder, right? He's stoned. And then the scattering starts taking place, correct? Now, there are some who stay in Jerusalem, but the vast majority, including the apostles, but the vast majority start to spread north. That's where the direction is. And what, so we're going to leave Stephen at this point. Uh, we're going to address it in future weeks. Uh, but here we see that they traveled, because of the persecution, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, you may be asking, where is Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch? Great question. What it is, is it's a coastal area north of Israel, north of Judah. It's along the coast. If you look at the at the at a map of the Mediterranean, you will see that the you have, if I can put it this way, here's here's um, the Mediterranean, here's Israel and Judah. All that's left is Judah because Israel's gone in 722 BC off to Assyria, uh, but Judah's still there. Israel, Judah. But if you follow the coast, you'll notice it'll go all the way up to a point and then go west. From that point downward, what mostly today what we would say is Lebanon, the coast of Lebanon, if you look at a, at a modern map, all the way up to that turn west is the part he's talking about. So the, the persecution now has driven people as far as 300 miles away, and it's quickly going to drive it further yet from Jerusalem. But Antioch is about 300 miles north of, of Jerusalem along the coast. Now, when those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, they were doing what? They were speaking the word to no one except for Jews. I just want to stop for a second. These people, these Jews being driven north by persecution are doing what? They're preaching, right? They're proclaiming the gospel. Now, that's important. I want you to hold on to that because it's going to come up again. This is nothing new. We've seen this show up again and again, but we're going to identify that because it's one of the major themes going on here. They're preaching the gospel, but they're preaching the gospel only to Jews. So they're basically going to synagogues that are there in these towns, in these cities, and they're preaching the gospel to them. It is interesting. Um, Phoenicia and Cyprus, not so much, but Antioch is a really, really debauched city. It's cosmopolitan, and it is absolutely corrupt in every way. Immorality raging everywhere. It's out of control. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, on whom the coming into Antioch, on, on who, uh, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. That's verse 20. You'll notice that it's mentioned there are certain people of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is down by Egypt. Cyprus is um, is up in that in that area we were just talking about along the coast. What these people are that are being described here, and this is where it's going to get a little confusing, so if I may help you with this, <clears throat> Cyrene has shown up previously in the text, way back in chapter 4. 
Um, and here's what's interesting. It gets a little confusing in the reading. If we're not careful, we'll get things all confused. So I just want to help help us out here. These people that are being mentioned in verse 20, this, some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene are coming to Antioch. These people are, and this is, should be encouraging, by the way. Remember chapter uh, chapter 6? These are also mentioned in chapter 6, by the way. Do you remember in chapter 6, there's a problem. And the problem was between the natural Jews and the Hellenized Jews. Remember that? The Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. There's a conflict. And according to what we've read during that time frame, Acts chapter 6 and 7, there was no reconciliation that took place. And it resulted in the beginning of the persecution. But what we find out here, interestingly enough, is the people mentioned in verse 20, the men of Cyprus and Cyrene are Hellenized Jews. So some Hellenized Jews were not sucked into the conflict or repented from the conflict. Does that make sense? They either weren't sucked in or they repented from that or maybe they weren't involved at all because they weren't in Jerusalem when the conflict was taking place. Either way, we discover that there are some Hellenized Jews who are truly repentant ones following Jesus, enthralled with Jesus, who have received the gospel and been saved. That's verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, and here's where it gets a little confusing, it says, spoke to the what? Hellenists, if you have the ESV, the King James says what? The Grecians. The Hellenists here in chapter 11 is not the same Hellenists in chapter 6. The Hellenists in chapter 6 are Greek-speaking Jews. Same as these from Cyrene and, and Cyprus. The Hellenists mentioned here are unsaved Greek-speaking Jews. They're still Hellenists. Both groups are Hellenists, but it's a different group. So what, what Luke is describing is Hellenists speaking to Hellenists. Grecian Jews speaking to Grecian Jews. He, he's, he's mentioning, however, he's distinguishing between them because some of them are believers and some of them are not. It is interesting, what is, this is just really subtle, but it is interesting that Luke does not lump them with the Hellenists, does he? You know why? Because Paul, Paul makes it really clear in Romans, right? There is no more Jew or Gentile, but all are one in Christ. This is a precursor to the statement. In other words, they're no longer described as Hellenists. In effect, they're referred to as people from these two locations, but they're believers. The emphasis by Luke is what? That they're Hellenists? No. The emphasis is they are Followers of Jesus. That's the, that's the focus. Very important. So Luke distinguishes between Hellenists that are not saved and mere people from the Hellenist areas because they are Hellenists, horizontally speaking, but they're not because they're in Christ. 
So these Hellenists, these, I'm sorry, these, these people from Cyprus and Cyrene, they come to Antioch along with the other persecuted Christians. They come to Antioch for what reason? We don't know. Maybe they were under persecution as well. When they arrive, however, unlike the other saved Christians or saved Jews, because they're mostly Jews at this point, if not almost all, if not all Jews, Jewish people, they do what? They speak to the Hellenists or the Grecians, the Grecian Jews. The non-saved Grecian Jews. Why would they do that? Well, because that would be most natural, wouldn't it? If they're Grecian-speaking, if they're Greek-speaking, and, and these Hellenists are Greek-speaking, wouldn't it be most natural for them to speak to those who they can speak to normally? Of course. That makes sense. So they speak to those who they feel most comfortable speaking with. Not that they're not speaking to the Hebrew people, but certainly native language speaks to native language most comfortably. It makes sense. Okay, that's, a, that's all it is. And most likely, these people from Cyprus and Cyrene don't even really know much about the, as much about the law or the significance of the law, or maybe, maybe, I'm just guessing, maybe they understand more significantly what's really going on. Don't know. Either way, what happens? These people from Cyrene and Cyprus, when they arrive in Antioch, what do they do? They start proclaiming the gospel to the Hellenists. They start proclaiming the gospel to the to these uh, Grecian-speaking people. Oh, and by the way, I didn't say this, but uh, there's also Grecian people that are Hellenists that are not Jewish. So there are Hellenists that are Jewish and Hellenists that are not Jewish. This group probably con contains both. In fact, I would guarantee you there's a merging of both. These Hellenists are both Greek-speaking Jews and non uh, Jewish, Greek-speaking people. So there's, it's a merging of both. Does that make sense? Especially now that we've moved far enough away from Jerusalem, you're going to see that merging taking place even more dramatically. The further away we get from Judah and, and, and Jerusalem, you're going to find more and more of the Hellenists being non-Jews. So there's probably a mixture of both of them there. So they come to these people, these Hellenists, and preach the Lord Jesus Christ to them. Verse 20. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Interesting statement. Remember, there's, these Hellenists are both Jews and non-Jews, but they are Grecian speaking. Interesting that you see that just matter-of-factly, what does Luke describe? Matter-of-factly, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who, uh, who believed turned to the Lord. Let me pause on that. It's an interesting way that Luke describes it, isn't it? A great many who what? Believed, did what? Turned to the Lord. There's a couple things to say about that end of verse 20 that's very intriguing. A great many who believed turned to the Lord. Implication being what? There's some who, what? They didn't turn, right? There's some. No, great many turned too, but there's some who believed and didn't turn. Have we seen that before? We saw it in the Gospels, right? The people who believed, but they didn't turn. We see that in, in, in the book of Acts too, don't we? Classic example is two people, anybody remember who? Ananias and Sapphira, who'd you say? 
Simon, Simon the magician, absolutely. There's another person. There's three that we see in Acts already, right? That believed but didn't turn. And you're right, Trevor, when you said, what does it mean, believe and turn? It's referring to, not a two-step process, but it's referring to true belief, which involves true repentance. A great many, so these, these Jews, uh, these believers who are Jews, who are from Cyrene and Cyprus, come to Antioch. They begin to preach to who? To these Hellenists, and vast majorities begin to believe in the message, right? And then it, in the midst of this vast majority beginning to believe, many, many, many of those do what? They turn. Now, it's really important that we, we grapple a little bit with verse 20. A little bit further. I'm sorry, verse 21. When he says, "In a great number who believe turn to the Lord, it is interesting. We have seen a numerous people, gospels, and already in Acts, and you can even go to the Old Testament, can't you? You see a lot of people who believe, but they're not changed, right? Let me give you an example. Here's a really easy one, Old Testament as well. When God had Moses go and rescue the people, did the people believe that God was rescuing them? Well, yeah, certainly they did. They believed, didn't they? I mean, they saw the pillar of fire later on. They saw the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of smoke during the day, right? They heard the, the rumbling, right, of God up on top of Mount Sinai. I mean, the manna came, right? All these miracles, going back even further, all these miracles, the, the, the plagues, they saw it all, right? I mean, the evidence was really clear God was at work, right? So they believed, they believed in God, didn't they? Yeah, but... Did they turn? Did they turn to God? No. In fact, what was that, Jim? They turned away. Didn't, isn't that what they did? They turned away. You see it in the Old Testament very clearly in the, in, the, in the Exodus, don't you? They turned away. And the evidence they turned away is multi, multifaceted, isn't it? Is, is it not continual grumbling? Never being satisfied? Not trusting God's word? That he, what he said was true? Did you see that every step of the way? And the result was what? According to Hebrews. Remember, we just went through Hebrews. According to Hebrews, not just they died in the wilderness, more importantly than they died in the wilderness was what? What do we see in Hebrews? As a result of that, they, they believed, but they didn't turn. So the result was what? Let me help you. They did not enter into his rest, right? Is that what you saw? They didn't enter into his rest. And we talked way back in Hebrews what that ramification that was. Ultimately, it meant what? They weren't saved people, were they? They believed. But they never turned. The gospel and the Spirit working in people, going back to the New Testament, when the Spirit works in people, He works in people salvation, which is evidences itself in what? Believing and turning. It's not believing no turning. It's believing turning. Again, not a two-step process. This is what happens when someone believes. And then it goes on, doesn't it, the rest of our lives? Believing and turning. Isn't it? But Simon the magician, you see believing, you don't see turning. And Isaac and Sapphira, you see believing, you don't see turning. 
Judas Iscariot. You see believing, you don't see turning. Does that make sense? And so we have in this situation for the first time... And by the way, it, this, is, this is why this passage is so significant. Up to this point in time, you have, you have Philip with the, with the eunuch, of course, right? You have Peter with Cornelius, correct? But what you have now is just common, everyday what? Christians, don't you? You have common, everyday Christians who because the Spirit is at work in their lives, and why is the Spirit at work in their lives? Because the Spirit worked at one point in time in their life. So they what? Believed and turned to the Lord. So the evidence that these people from Cyrene and Cyprus believed and turned to the Lord, obviously by the work of the Spirit in their lives, because that's all Spirit done, is what? That they... Proclaim the gospel, and then what happens? The Spirit works in those other people's lives, and what happens? They turn, or they believe, and turn to the Lord. Correct? Now, the believing and turning to the Lord does not evidence that the, the people from Cyrene and Cyprus had. It's just, that's what happened. That's how the Spirit worked. The evidence that, that the Spirit had worked where they were saved, is that they turned and believed, and the evidence that they turned and believed because the Spirit did that in them, is that they what? They preached the gospel. Period. Right? So they couldn't help it. It's the point. They arrive in Cyprus, and I'm sorry, they, they arrive in Antioch, knowing again, I'm getting the complete picture, knowing, we see it now, that the persecution is doing what? It's moving north, isn't it? It's moving north up the coast. And the Christians are fleeing persecution, but in the fleeing, they're doing what? They're preaching. They're proclaiming. Why? Why would, why would you do that if you knew the results? You ever think about that? If you knew the sure results, why would you do that? Can I go back to our confession, Tom? Why would you do that? Because you know the tell us, right? Because the Spirit is implanted in your heart. And the result is what? You preach. Because you've turned from all that the world offers and you've turned to Christ. And you turn to the one who's offered us Christ. Right? Amen? And the result is you Proclaim the one that you've turned to. That's what happens. And that's what's happening here, isn't it? It's exactly what's happening. Verse 22. Sure enough, the report of mass conversions of Gentiles begins to get really quickly, even in the midst of the persecution, really begin, really quickly begins to trickle down 300 miles. One could call it the whisper down the lane. Right? It gets back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Remember Barnabas? When was the last time Barnabas showed up for us? Anybody remember? End of chapter 4. 
Barnabas, it just simply says he did what? He's the last one before Ananias and Sapphira that sold his property and gave it to the, gave it to the church to take care of people. He's described just like Stephen is later in chapter 6 as being full of the Holy Spirit. Notice, <clears throat> they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Later on, you're going to see it stated. Um, maybe I'm blind here. Verse 24, referring to Barnabas again, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's what it said in chapter 4, and here it says it again in chapter 11. That's exactly what Steve, how Stephen was described as well. That means he what? Believed and what? Turned to the Lord. And by the way, I didn't say this, but turn, the implication of, being, of turning to the Lord, I, I'm going to jump back to it briefly, I forgot to mention this. The implication of turning to the Lord, the obvious implication is what? Yes, repentance, but obviously, if I turn to the Lord, turn from something else, right? And in this case, turn from what? Judaism, or more importantly, turn from the world and the world system, right? Or to put it a different way, it's turning to Jesus, the King, the King of the Kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven and turning from the evil one and the kingdom of the evil one or the kingdom of this world. Is that right? Does that make sense? The implication being they're really standing out. Correct? There's no ambiguity here. This is important. There's no ambiguity. They stand out. How much did it stand out? Somehow 300 miles it got down to Jerusalem. And there's no Wi-Fi. And there's no cell phones. You'd be out of a job. Right, Matt? Out of a job. No computers. No telephones. Going back up there, 22, the reporters came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, he arrives in Antioch. When he came... I love the way Luke puts this. When he came, verse 23, and saw the grace of God, he was glad. I love the way he puts that. You know what, you know what Luke's really describing? He, Barnabas arrives after a 300-mile journey. He arrives in Antioch. And the thing that stands out most to him is what? The beautiful architecture of Antioch. What stands out most to him is the great food. Is that what stands out most to him? What, what stands out most to him is the debauchery in town. Is that what stands out to him? How cosmopolitan the place is. Now, what jumps off the page to him is what? The gods at work. What jumps off the page to Barnabas when he arrives in town is what? The grace of God. You see, to put it a different way, Barnabas arrives in Antioch. 
And when he arrives at Antioch, he arrives in a spiritually really, really dark town. It's corrupt to the core. It's absolutely immoral. And in the, that era, area, by the way, it's like number one debauched. If you think, if you think things are bad now, <laughs> from a morality standpoint, you'd be shocked down to the soles of your feet if you walked into Antioch. And when Luke walks, I'm sorry, when Barnabas walks in, what does he see? The grace of God, the light, blazing. That's what he sees. It's blazing. He can't miss it. You, you, you get the sense as he puts it together so tightly. When he came, the implication is as he's arriving, or immediately. That's the sense you get out of the way Luke writes this. Immediately. He observes. He recognizes. It's clear. What is? The grace of God. The implication that the way Luke writes it is, it's unmissable. We know it traveled 300 miles. It's unmissable. You can't avoid seeing it. It is in your face. I'm not talking about obnoxious, trying to be obnoxious. I'm saying it's just evident. It's obvious. It's clear. You can't miss it. Or to put it a different way, these Christians are wearing the grace of God on their sleeve. And you can skin it out a lot more. What, what Barnabas, what Luke is, dis is discussing or pointing out in Barnabas' arrival is, as he comes in, the first thing he notices is this. I, I'm just taking liberties with the text, okay? I really am. He walks in, and you know, what he, you, you know what happens? He immediately starts seeing Christians telling the gospel. I, I can just picture it. He walks into, he comes into town, doesn't know anybody. He shows up because Jerusalem Church, that is the apostles, sent him up there to see what's going on. Now, he probably shows up, walks in, goes to the marketplace, and what does he see? People preaching the gospel. People proclaiming the truth. Potently, powerfully proclaiming the word of God. And then he walks a little bit further and he sees some Christians praying together. And I, I suspect it's not, thank you Lord for the food. Right? He sees people praying together deeply in prayer with one another. He walks a little bit further and he comes along and he sees, remember, there's no church buildings. <laughs> he see, Maybe he sees some, some people in the market and they're sitting there at, at, at whatever version of Starbucks it was that day. And they're sitting there with their Bibles open. And they're talking. Or maybe they don't have a Bible, but they're wrestling with truth. They're wrestling with, with what they learn, with what they know about Jesus. Obviously, most people didn't have Bibles back then. And you didn't walk around with your scrolls. But they're sitting there, as it were, and they're wrestling with the truth and trying to figure things out. And they're ministering to each other the truth. And they're reminding one another of the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, 
You could say, well, Steve, you're taking some pretty significant liberties with the text, aren't you? I mean, that's some pretty, pretty strong leaps, isn't it? No, not at all. Not at all. You know why I would say that? Here's why I would say that. Because in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? And then the Spirit came on the apostles with power, correct? And what happened? Did they look a little different? Did they talk a little different? Did everything change for them? Everything did, didn't it? And then people started getting saved. 3,000 that first day. And what happens with those 3,000? What happened to them? Acts 2, 42 to 47. Right? What began to happen? They're sharing their possessions with one another. They're getting together daily to pray. They're getting together daily to study the scriptures together. They're breaking bread together. They're worshiping together. Day after day after day after day. <laughs> right? And just a reminder, these guys weren't independently wealthy so they could do this. They had jobs. I say that because I hear people say that. Well, yeah, but Steve, life is busy today. Life was busy for them. But they understood the end game because the Spirit got a hold of their heart. Right? When the Spirit got a hold of their heart and they repented, they believed and turned, then all they wanted was more of what? Of Jesus. Isn't that right? All they wanted was more of Jesus. And so, am I taking liberties with the text? I don't think so. Verse 23 again, when he came, he saw the grace of God. The implication pretty clearly is it was evident, right? He didn't have to come with, with a biblical microscope to try to find any grace. Does that make sense? I say that because <clears throat> too often, I'm going to take a huge step back here, okay? I'm going to wander back a while ago. Because it's been a little while since I've heard this. But I, I wonder how much of the lack of hearing this anymore is because of lack of opportunity to meet new people or not. I don't know. But I remember for years after I came to, to our church as a pastor, how often I'd meet people from various people's neighborhood. People that were of our church, I'd meet people from their neighborhood where they lived. And so I started talking to them, hey, do you know so-and-so? And they'd say, oh yeah, I know so-and-so. We'll say his name was Bill. Oh yeah, I know Bill. Oh yeah, I've known Bill for years. Oh, Bill's a good guy. And I say, oh really? Yeah, he's a member of our church. And I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, he goes to church? I say, yeah. Been a member of our church for a long time. He goes to church? Yeah. He's a Christian? Yeah. What kind of church? Uh, we're a Baptist church. He's one of those? I would have never guessed it. That's horrifying to me. That's not this. Again, I wonder how much 
for me is just lack of new people to ask that question to. And how much is, is, is still ongoing? I, I don't know. I don't know. The Lord does. But it's, what, the reason why I point it out is when Barb's came to town, it's evident. It was clear to him. Grace of God. Oh, yeah. Grace of God. Oh, wow. Look at the grace of God. Oh, my goodness. This is awesome. Look at this. Oh. I suspect, <clears throat> I suspect that as Luke, I'm sorry, as Barnabas is walking through through uh, the, the town square, so again, just a suspicion, he'd see two people praying. He goes, oh, excuse me, I know you guys are praying, but can I ask you a question? Who are you praying to? They say, we're praying to Jesus. And he, and I, I could just picture, I don't, I, I don't know Barnabas at all. Obviously, he's been long gone, but I, I could see if, if Barnabas was all like me. Oh, who are you praying to? Pray to Jesus. Oh, really? What do you know about Jesus? Oh, why don't you have a seat? Let, let, let's tell you. And next thing you know, a new worship service breaks out. He just saw it. It was clear. It was evident. It was eye-popping. He couldn't miss it. Why? How could he not miss it? Well, because it was dark there. It was dark. Light can't be missed, Right? It's dark. Yesterday morning, I got up early on Saturday mornings. I usually I go for a run with other people, and so usually we go out at six thirty. So I have to leave the house at six twenty. It's dark. I have this waist light I wear, and it's six hundred lumens. It's bright. And I stepped outside yesterday morning, even though there was not a cloud in the sky, and it was black. And I closed the door behind me. I reached down, I pushed the light, and it came on, and oh my goodness, everything lit up. And it was so cool because as I looked, I'm walking down the road, and down the road from us, maybe 200 yards is a 35 mile an hour speed limit sign. And through the woods, it was shining brightly. And as I'm going down the hill, I'm like, this is, it's dark. <laughs> this is gospel. This is gospel, and it's popping. It can't be missed. It can't be. It's incredibly, every time when I'm running in the dark, and somebody comes around a sharp bend, because sharp bends around us, somebody's driving up the hill, or, or when I'm on the flats, whatever, and he's, and he's coming up, and he comes around the bend, and there I am. It's like, woo, he swerves immediately, because I can't be missed. It's evident, it's bright. No matter how dark it gets, it doesn't matter. The darker it gets, the brighter the, the light shines, right? Should be that way. Can I just ask you a quick question? Is our world dark? Or is our world more like mm, pre-dawn? That like 30 minutes before, before the sun actually comes up. Is that it? Or is it really dark? It's really dark, isn't it? Black as can be. It's as black as can be. I wonder how many people, if I use the illustration, I wonder how many people claim to be believers. They got a flashlight, there's no battery in it. Kind of like believing but not turning. Got the flashlight, but it doesn't have any effect. If anything, if people figured out that's a flashlight, 
around your waist, they'd probably think it's really weird. Why would you have a flashlight that doesn't on? It's not on. Why have a flashlight around your waist? Nothing's happening. But in the darkness, I can't even see it, right? In the darkness, the flashlight's not seen. Unless it's on. But boy, oh boy, when it turns on, it can't be missed. That's the point of verse 23, isn't it? When it's on, it can't be missed. And if we're going to use the spiritual analogy, if it's, re- if it's really on, because the Spirit has moved, you know, you know what's really different about that flashlight versus the one I wear? It never gets turned off. <laughs> right? Because the Spirit's always at work. See, once the sun comes up, I turn mine off. <laughs> but the spiritual light that the Spirit brings never gets turned off because it blazes bright even, even when. It, it blazes bright even when you're in the midst of other believers, doesn't it? When you're, when you're with other believers and you're fellowshipping in the Lord, it's light. It's like, woo, it's the light. still blazes, doesn't it? Because the Spirit's light is even brighter than anything that could pour out of me, my light is imperfect at best. The Spirit's brighter yet. So for Barnabas, when he arrived, it was evident. And it caused Barnabas, verse 23, to respond how? Jim, what does your King James say? Verse 23. Okay, so it says he was glad. So does the ESV. It says he was glad. The idea of he was glad is it's like to the extreme. He was thrilled is the idea. He was overwhelmingly thrilled with the reality that light was blazing in the midst of this darkness. It goes back to what Paul said. Let your light what? So shine what? What does it say next? Anybody remember? That who may see his good works? They. they who's the they? Everybody around may see his good works and what? Glorify your Father. Right? You know what it says? It's exactly what it says. This is what, this is what he's observing. And I love what, how Paul describes it. That they may see it. Right? Not much good if there's no seeing it. And it brings them to worship. Absolutely. So when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, he was thrilled, he was ecstatic, he was rejoicing greatly. You can use whatever terms you want there. And then verse 23, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks is that, that little phrase with steadfast purpose. It's interesting Interesting twist of words there. We're going we're to focus on that one in a couple of weeks, or next week, or two weeks from now. But you'll notice that he did not, Barnabas, and I just want to say it here in verse 23, Barnabas did not come, observe, be glad, and go away. Did he? Right? This was not a Oh, you got saved? Well, great. Praise the Lord. Got to go. You get the sense that for Barnabas, it was like, huh, 
You got saved? You love the Lord? You turned and you believed and turned? I'm changing my calendar because I want to hang out with you. You get the sense that's the case? Like nothing else matters. I just want this. And so it says again in verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he what? Began immediately to do what? Exhort them. Some of your translations may say encourage. Um, it could be encourage, it could be exhort, it's probably both. He's strongly speaking to them. Why? Because they're living in, in the midst of what? A wicked and depraved generation, right? That town is wicked and depraved, corrupt, correct? And so what does is, what is Barnabas, Barnabas do? He rejoices that the grace of God is showing, and as soon as he's rejoicing, he's also doing what? Exhorting them. In other words, he's bringing the scriptures to them. He's, and, and the picture is both an encouragement. Guys, keep on. But it's also an exhortation. Watch out! Isn't it? You kind of get the, the encouragement idea and exhortation. On the one hand, it's like, woo, this is so exciting and so worthy of praise. Then you also hear Hebrews, be after today while it's still today so you don't get a cold or hard heart. Right? Which will ultimately evidence what? That you believe, but you didn't turn. Be after Christ today. That's what you hear here with, with, with Barnabas in verse 23. He immediately begins to exhort them to remain what? Faithful to the Lord. He exhorts them. Cling to Him. Pursue Him. Learn of Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Drink from the fountain of living water. Keep on drinking. Do you hear it? Now, lest we miss the point, Barnabas doesn't do this real briefly and move on. Let's follow through in the text. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I just, all I want to say about verse 24 is this. This does not put Barnabas in a different category of, real, of other Christians. That statement in verse 24 for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, does not establish that there are several different categories of Christians. What is he saying about, about Barnabas? He did these things. Why? Because he's a good man, and because he's full of faith, or full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What is he saying? He's a good man. What made him good? It, 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 we have to answer the question, what made him good? Is it, is, it, is it just innately good? No. What does the Bible say about innate goodness? It doesn't exist. Romans makes that really clear. <laughs> right? It doesn't exist. If he's a good man, he's a good man. Why? Because the Spirit moved in his life, and he what? Believed and turned. Right? So the Spirit made him a good man. When it says in verse 24, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, where did that come from? Acts 1.8. Barnabas is giving us, or, I'm sorry, Luke is just giving us a picture in Barnabas that, that's expanded from what all these other people in Antioch are like, that are believers, that have, have believed and turned. They're doing what? 
They're proclaiming the gospel and exhorting and encouraging one another. Barnabas comes in, he observes the grace of God at work, and he merely joins in. Now, certainly he has more knowledge of Christ than these other people do, which causes him to do what? Get an exhortational encouragement ministry going, right? Because he was sent by the church to do so. He comes up, observes, and begins to minister to, but he's no different than the rest of them. When the Spirit has captured somebody's heart, they become a a good man because the Spirit that's within them. And they begin, they are full of the Holy Spirit and faith because of the Spirit that's within them. The result is they, he does what? He ministers. And because of the next verse, we know that not only was he ministering, exhorting the believers, he was also doing what? Because of the next sentence in verse 24, he was evangelizing. He, he joined in with all these other people from Cyrene and Cyprus in Antioch, exhorting and encouraging and evangelizing. So he's out there preaching away as well. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus looking for Saul. Why would he go to, why would he go to Tarsus? It seems like kind of weird. Why would he take off for Tarsus? Well, because of the last sentence in verse 24. What's going on? Last sentence in 24, what's happening? Lots of people are getting added, right? Lots of people are coming to faith in Christ. It's overwhelming, so Barnabas says, tell you guys what, keep ministering, as you're doing, keep ministering to one another, I'll be back. And he takes off for Tarsus, which is, what? That's northwest, a couple hundred miles away from where he is right now in Antioch. So he's got to go northwest. He goes up, he finds Saul in, Tar in Tarsus, and it says what? Um, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Saul, I need your help. This is, this is overwhelming me. I can't do this myself. I need your help. So he brings him back to Antioch, and for a whole year they meet with the church and taught a great many people. Wow. Does it sound, does it sound like, like, like Barnabas is really caught up with Jesus? Does it? Does it sound like Saul is really caught up with Jesus? Enthralled with Jesus? Sound like they believe and turned? But you know the untold thing, or the un, unseen thing here, it says they taught a great many people, which means what? It's really kind of simple. It's not complex. It means there's a whole lot of people who wanted to Learn about Jesus. There's a whole lot of people who want to learn. And why would they want to learn about Jesus? Because they believed, because the Spirit was at work in their life, because they had believed and turned. And the evidence that they believed and turned is what they want is what? They want the bread from heaven. They want to know the food that Jesus talked about to his disciples when he said, I have food that you know nothing about. They want to know about that. That's what they want to know about. That's what they crave. And so he taught them. A great many were taught. A great many people were taught. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Interesting, 
ending of the, of the passage. <clears throat> First time that they were called Christians, that the followers of Jesus were called Christians was in Antioch. And the implication is not that they call themselves that. It's not, that's, not, that's not what the text says. They were called that, which implies what? The other people, the non-saved people, are calling the saved people Christians. And what does Christian mean? One who identifies with Christ. Their identity is Christ. And that would be understood this, by, by these, these unsaved people. The, the, the Greek people up there would understand the term Christian. One who is following Christ. One who looks to Christ. One who identifies with Christ. One whose identity is Christ. That's what it means. And so, so what Luke does, he wraps up this storyline by saying, in this short little statement, is this. These Christians, these people who believed and turned, so evidently loved Jesus that the unsaved world in Antioch looked at them and said, these people identify with Jesus. These people's identity is Jesus. These people follow Jesus. It's a radical thought today. I mean, you walk, you walk through America and you ask people in America, are you a Christian? And man, a whole, whole horde of people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Then you ask them, and you probe, and you push. Next thing you know, people start getting offended pretty quick. Why is that? Because they're not Christians. They're not Christians. It's gotten so bad that now you see all sorts of unsaved people and they feel very comfortable wearing a cross, for example. Like, really? Serious? That's really weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's totally redefined. Christianity is totally redefined. It's no longer defined by what the scriptures say. In other words, there's no believing and turning, is there? And what's sad is, you see it out in the world, but what's sad is you find it in the church. It's equally bad, if not worse, in the church. Why? Because there's supposed to be light in the church. And somehow, we've, we, we've, we've dumbed it all down where Christianity is not about... Believing and turning. It's about believing. And, it's, and, and you don't even have to believe all of it. You kind of can pick and choose and ignore a boatload of it. And one thing that's really true is it's not transformative. That's why there's no turning. But that's not Luke's view of being a Christian. Luke's view of a Christian is radically different. It's evident. It transforms the person because the Spirit is at work in them, transforming them. And to the world it becomes evident 
How does it become evident to them? Now, it's interesting, what, I'm going to close on this, but it's interesting, Luke, nowhere in this text, says they become identified with Christ because they don't do this, and 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 they don't do that. He doesn't say that, does he? Is it even implied in there? Is it even hinted at in there? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe by, by default because of everything else, but it is not even on the periphery, is it? No, what's in the text is what? They're identified with Christ because they what? Because the grace of God is flowing through them. Right? Because they're recipients of the grace of God, and the grace of God is flowing through them, and it becomes really evident. Are they no longer doing the things they used to do? Well, yeah, of course. Are they going getting smashed all the time? No. Are they going up to the pagan temples and committing all sorts of immorality anymore? No. No. They're not, are they? Are they, are they functioning just like the world is in all different ways? No, they're not. But that's all, that's all secondary stuff. That's all automatic results of what? Turn, believing and turning. But the real point in the text is, the real close evidence of it is what? The real close evidence that these people are Christians is they've received the gospel, Right? They believe the gospel, correct? They've turned to God, right? And the result of turning to God is they're doing what? They're proclaiming him. They're shedding light into a dark, lost world. Are they not? And as they're, sh as they're shining the light into the lost and dying world, they're also shining the light into each other's lives, aren't they? And the other evidence that's given is what? They long for and crave to be instructed, taught, explain the truth. They long for it. They crave it. They went to a year-long seminar. You know what it says? They went to a year-long Barnabas and Saul seminar. Well, it wasn't the Barnabas and Saul seminar. It was the Jesus seminar. They were just the teachers. You get it, though, don't you? You get the sense that, to go back to your confession, Tom, because the telos changed, Everything changed in, in, in light of it, didn't it? Everything changed. Now, certainly, that doesn't mean they weren't repent. They didn't need to continue to repent, right? You know, they had to continue to believe and continue, because he exhorted them, didn't he? So you know they were continuing to repent and continue to turn, right? Certainly. Otherwise, there would be no need for the exhortation. They needed to continue to turn and continue to believe. But if the spirits didn't work in them, what would they do? They would turn, or they would believe and turn. Right? That's what would happen. Oftentimes we even evaluate what Christianity is by all the wrong things. The evidence here is what? They're enthralled with Jesus, and being enthralled with Jesus, being enthralled with the gospel means that they do what? They preach it. They proclaim it. To both the lost and to the believers. That's what's happening. Now, again, 
we could, and I know we're over time, we could look at this text and say, yeah, but Steve, that was the early church. I hear that all the time. Yeah, but that was the early church. As if somehow being, being namby-pamby about Christianity today is somehow okay because we're not the early church. Like, what's that all about? You know, this, this was a different time back then. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> the only thing that's ever changed in world history once the fall took place, is Christ. That's the only thing that's ever changed. The heart of man has never changed. And the only time the heart changes is when the Spirit moves in someone's life. And when he moves in someone's life, according to the reading of the Scripture that I see, not just here in Acts chapter 11, but throughout the Scriptures, it's dramatic. It's clear. And the darker it is, the more clear it is. And then when it's really, really light, it's still really clear. It's just always clear. So what do we do with this text? <clears throat> if I could do anything with this text right now, we're going to go back to the text again in the next two weeks, Lord willing, but if I could do anything with this text right now, <clears throat> it would be probably to ask us a question. And a simple question is, it's found in the, it's come out, it comes out of the last verse that we looked at. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. If I could do anything at all with this text, applicationally, it'd be this. Why would anybody call me a Christian? Why would anybody call you a Christian? Why would that be? It's an important question. Why would that be? Why would anybody call me a Christian? Why would it? Why, why would anybody? Why would it even cross anybody's mind to call me a Christian? It's, is, it, is it the rest of this text? Is that, is that what's going on in my life? And as a result, people call me a Christian. Is that it? Or is it because of the things I don't do? Or maybe do? Or is it because of who I vote for in elections? Or is it because of what church I go to? Why would anybody call you a Christian? That's the question that we all should answer. Not just today. We should answer this all the time, shouldn't we? What is a Christian? What really is a Christian? Oh, for the grace of God to shine into our hearts, right? Amen? Transform us. Draw us close. I want to remind you of the promise of God that I've mentioned over and over and over again since we've been in, Acts, in the book of Acts. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He promises that if we seek him with all our heart, what? We'll find him. Right? And even that's by the Spirit. Even that is. Too often, friends, we let days go into weeks, go into months, and even go into years. And we continue not to seek Him. We seek other things. We can't help but seek. We seek other things, but not Him. And yet, we'll label, we'll label ourselves Christians, interestingly enough, because nobody else does. That's where it gets really weird. 
I'll label myself a Christian because nobody else does. Well, it should be the opposite way around. Not that I'm labeling myself a Christian. Other people are recognizing because the light is blinding. Oh, you're one of these Christians. Yeah, yeah, I am. I agree. I love Jesus. So that should be the response, I would think. Yeah, I am. Not, I'm a Christian. Yes, I am. <laughs> so why should we be called Christians? Believe and turn. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> help us to understand the beauty of your gospel. Open our eyes to see. You are a, the glorious Redeemer. You are beautiful. We were hopeless, doomed. And yet you reached out and saved us. You crossed time and space and drew us when we could not draw ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you will transform us. Give us a heart that is inflamed with you. We too easily become inflamed with so many other things. But you alone are our Redeemer. You alone change everything. You alone are God. So we ask you to glorify yourselves in our hearts. Draw us close. Help us to believe and turn to you for your glory and praise. In your name I pray. Amen.